going to be your fifth favourite film podcast. I will be a regular host, and your regular co-host will be Gareth Sims, who will be uh, joining me on this to talk about the uh, film Christmas again. And what else we talk about? Love Without Pity by Eric Rochant from 1989, and then a couple of YouTube short films, The Mask by Connor O'Malley. And uh, The Man Who Could Not Miss Screenings by Damon Packard. Um, Pilot episode, a rough idea of what the podcast will be like. I can guarantee you in future episodes there will be a lot more references to Jonathan Rosenbaum. So uh, get reading up on him if you want to get an idea of where we're going to steal all our ideas from. And listeners, uh, let's just, enough messing around, let's get straight into it. As I stumble and stagger through this intro, uh, let's get into 10 terabyte hard drive. Pilot episode. Episode 1, official episode 1, will be out next week, in which uh, we will reveal the titles of which uh, we'll be talking about uh, on that episode at the end of this podcast. Or if you want to cheat, check the uh, Mega Drive, Mega Upload link in the episode description to see what we're talking about in the episode 2 file. Um, let's start with let's go with Christmas again Um, the the only film so far of Charles Charles Pokel um, Charles Pokel yes yeah what what do you think of like you know when uh, they talk about like Christmas films it's always like did you know Die Hard is a Christmas film it's like oh okay yeah I know (laughs) I know it's a I know it's a Christmas film Die Hard 2 also technically a Christmas film I believe no correct yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder why. Wonder why this one isn't brought up. Is it because it's so small and sad and depressing, or do you reckon it's just you know people need to see bloodlust and violence when it comes to a Christmas film? <laughs> yeah, I, lo- I love the Die Hard thing. It's become like a meme unto itself now, hasn't it? Whereas the original meme was like everyone praising it for being a Christmas movie. Now it's the meme is about everyone talking about it being a Christmas movie and that being a very yeah. trite observation. Um, yes. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we could definitely throw in some diehard chat at some point because I, I think you liked that tweet I posted, didn't you, of uh, the John John McTarian uh, DVD commentary of the first one, which amazing, just thought was absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> I can't yeah. believe. I mean, I've I've loved him for a long time. He's he's evidently a brilliant formalist, but the way he like articulates himself around it is just incredible. Um, but yeah, we, we can we can revisit that one. Um, for Christmas again I don't know if it's because I think it's just the scale of the film really I think you've got mm. a core subsection of cinephiles that 
absolutely gravitated at, at, at a certain time to anything that Sean Price Williams was photographing, and uh, <laughs> rightly so. <laughs> yeah. Because his um, Super 16 stuff is absolutely beautiful, as it is in this mm. one. Um, yeah, it, it is. It was a depressing... It, well, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if I buy into the fact that it was it was depressing. Um, there's certainly moments in it that had a, a quite deep resonance with me because ever since I've been single and enjoying Christmas, um, it's not quite been the same. I've always loved the Christmases where I've had a partner and I've been right. single at Christmas now for the last two Christmases. And there's always right. that like feeling of emptiness that comes with that where you're like this is good and I've you know I've still had a nice time with my family around those times but there's something missing and sharing Christmas with the partners as you know I'm sure you're well aware is elevates it and, and does make it a bit extra special and because it, it does it is that time of year isn't it, that does remind you like when you haven't the things of the things you haven't got sometimes um in terms of you know if you if you're in a relationship or not and the film is certainly about that and, mm. and very personal but then I mean, yeah there's all these little rituals he's got in it in terms of uh, well I, I really like the touch of him buying himself the advent calendar which is something that I've done as well <laughs> it's just like I'm single and I'm not going to enjoy Christmas so I'm going to buy an advent calendar to try and um, yeah. remember some part of my childhood recapture some part of my childhood and it never works I get to like day 11 I'm like I'm sick of this now I'm just going to eat all the chocolate which I think he actually <laughs> does in one of the scenes as well yeah. so I found that really really resonant it's but like no obviously uh... you're more familiar with the film so I'd like to hear your take but I don't think it's unknown because of it's it being a bit sad I just think it's the nature of you know the fact he's only done one film and he's not that well known so it kind of slipped under the radar a little bit i mean i hadn't heard of it until you recommended it but i'm glad that you did yeah i mean christmas again the interesting thing about it is that the guy who made it actually did this like he was selling christmas trees living in a caravan on the side of the road somewhere in brooklyn doing the night shift and that's where he sort of wrote it was over one year doing that in december and I think that's the thing that comes through is like the specific specificity of it, of like the yes. the sales arrangements, the kind of like shitty bourgeois people that are moving into the area, you know, like, I mean, me and you used to live in London um, and actually kind of in a similar area. And I don't know about you, mm. but I did notice uh, the change of people over the course of time that I lived there, you know, going from quite a diverse area to a bunch of white lads with glasses and a beard says me the man <laughs> white guy with glasses and a beard and i'm just like oh okay this is this is interesting and you notice yeah. that in this film as well it's just like the clientele is kind of all relatively similar i feel like just like there is a there is sort of like a middle classness to them that um is kind of like subtly hidden but do you know what I like yeah. about it is that it gives you like these little threads of like a normal romantic Christmas film, like yes. the the stray young woman who is asleep on the park bench and then she comes back later and brings him a pie and you know and they have like a nice sweet moment and she stays around but nothing happens and you're like oh okay it's going to be this movie and then the end result is that he gets punched in the head from behind and <laughs> by her boyfriend, a guy, a character who we meet earlier, who has been a drunk bore. Um, and 
I like that it gives you like these little drip drab moments of like cinematic convention um, just to like you know push it along a bit more because otherwise you know you do have an 80 minute movie of a man selling Christmas trees which to me is fine <laughs> but I think for a lot of other yeah. people would be a bit, a bit of a struggle but I do love like the little bits of um, yeah just cinematic sort of um, narrative normality um, mm. to balance it out only for them to then not like fully commits them like you know the last day on christmas eve when he's going around delivering they're having like their sort of tender romantic sort of fizzling yeah. you know sort of moments and then it just leads to nothing because you know it's the happiest time of year and you don't really have anyone to spend it with and it's you know that connection that you briefly hold on to is the thing that's most important at that time and then just kind of moves on in a sort of fleeting way um yeah, I think I think it's it's kind of like a quietly beautiful film, and I think the performances at the heart of it are actually quite lovely um, as well. Yeah, um, they're, they're I, both I of them did, did are, feel, are really great. Sorry, did you did you feel like any sort of kinship to their sort of um, predicaments? Like I don't know if you if you've like worked like a particularly shit job before, where you know you're having to work a night shift. And like you got some shitty manager just like <laughs> <laughs> blasting you for no real reason. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Twenty, I can't remember now. Twenty fifteen. It was the first Christmas that I hadn't been at my my own house for Christmas, and um, and it was on the basis that I had to work at Christmas Eve uh, or the day before Christmas Eve. I can't quite remember. Yeah, possibly the twenty third. And a horrible yeah. manager. I worked in. Um, Oh god, which which one was it? I was in a cine world at the time. It was my first oh! job outside of uh, yeah, it was my first job outside of university, and I can't remember which one it was. It was oh, that was it. It was the West India Keys one, so Canary Wharf. Um, oh, and it was painful. It was. I, rem- I remember thinking to myself, okay, I'll, rather than working in like a pub or whatever, I'll just get a job that's within my realms of interest. So I'll go work at a fucking multiplex. <laughs> yeah. Which was, uh, yeah, it was a disaster. They were they were ruthless there. Uh, the management really, yeah, kind of stick up their arse, you know, classic middle manager. I'm more than I am. I went types. there. Oh, I went there you've been once. there, have you? Yeah. I went there once. <laughs> it was to see the film Welcome to the Punch. Do you remember that movie? And <laughs> no, I no, had to leave. Oh, terrible British crime film with like Mark Strong and James McAvoy. Oh, um, of course. And um, I ended up watching it maybe like a couple years ago, but I had to leave the film because there was like two massive rats in the cinema. And I went to the management. I was just like, hey, man, there's two huge rats in there. And they're like, okay. I'm like, well, can I get a refund? And I was like, well, the film started 10 minutes ago. So no. I'm like, okay, right. Well, I guess I'm leaving now. That was a horrible experience. So uh, wow. <laughs> that was my experience I mean, that, in that, that cine world. Yeah, that that kind of shithousery was um, was felt even more deeply when they were actually you know responsible for you and you're working for them. The rotors were horrible. I never saw any rats, thankfully. Um, oh, but yeah, God. that is that is about the nadir, isn't it? That you can experience at a multiplex. Um, yeah, I, it, yeah, brutal. What was I say? Yeah, sorry. Um, so that was it. So that I, I then spent Christmas at my girlfriend's house who came, picked me up from that night shift and we drove back to her place at Kent. And that feeling of, I suppose it's similar in the sense that 
you know you're doing something for Christmas I guess that's you know a little bit a, a little bit different to what you normally do I think that's that's probably a bit of a contrasting one though because his one is I feel like he's had the same Christmas hasn't he every year and it's always yeah. been about going to New York from upstate and selling yeah. the Christmas trees um obviously with his girlfriend and then the, what I think the film does really beautifully is that it's entirely devoid of any kind of explanation or backstory. Um, everything is in gestures. Everything is in mm. kind of, you know, the framing and, and how he's feeling in a certain scene and the emotions of it. Also very clearly pulled from, you know, personal experience of the director. I think, you know, those kind of autobiographical indie films can sometimes be a little bit heavy handed, but I think he's got a really, really delicate <laughs> touch in the way that he approaches this one where you just know every scene is certainly something that's happened to him. Um, but he, he captures it in a way that feels, you know, quite organic and nice. Um, but yeah, I, to go back to your original question, I can, I can relate to the plight of the characters. Obviously, the shitty job, the manager. I think that's why I started the Christmas anecdote, um, because that was that was my experience too. You know, having, especially working towards, up and towards the Christmas period, when you when you're working a dead-end job for some douchebag like <laughs> that is always yeah. the worst feeling and i think he captures that really well um yeah. but yeah it'd be it'd be, it'd be cool to hear because I, I think i think based on having looked at it on letterbox i think you are a little bit more enamored with it than me i think my my favorite things about it were how how real it felt um it's basically seasonal Affective disorder, the movie, and I think it gets it catches that tone <laughs> so perfectly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, do you know what um, it just reminds me? It, it reminds go me. On, go on. It reminded me of that film Funny Pages that came out last year. I don't know if you saw that. I've not, but Sean I know Price. the one you mean. Yeah. yeah, that was a Sean Price Williams shot movie. Um, that I really love. That sort. I don't know. I love that sort of indie movie that's got like. You know, it doesn't hide. I don't know. It, does, it has sort of like a rawness to it, and I think yeah, sort I of agree. Like, I I link to that a lot more with that approach to an indie movie. Um, you know, that sort of scuzzy characters, maybe sort of like outsider characters a bit more. Yeah, I sort of like pull towards that, and. I don't know, I felt like a kinship to this guy, you know, of like, you know, when I used to... Me too. I used to work nights. When I used to work nights, and, um, you know, you would just see either the same people come through, or you'd see these one-off characters come through your job, and you were just like, how have you ended up here? Like, what what has happened to you? Like, what what is this? And you <laughs> kind of like, you kind of build like a momentary bond with a person, and then they go. Yes. And then you sort of move on. And I think, think that that pain and agony of working night shift... Yeah, you know, I always remember that the meme of, like, I think it's, um... I think it's, like, a Skyrim character. It's, like, the skeleton. Like, a skeletal sort of character. And it said, like, <laughs> you know... Oh, don't worry, man. Nights is great. There's no management around. And it's a skeletal character. And it says, like, Gareth, age 25. And it's just, like, this guy <laughs> just looks completely emaciated. And she's yeah. like, yeah, I remember feeling like shit working that. And I, again, I think watching it this time, a slightly older man who mm. has had those experiences, I relate to a bit more to the, you know, shitty, uh, narky cinephile that watched it in 2014 or 2015, where it was just like, 
oh, this is a slice of life type thing that I'm never going to relate to, and it's a great window into it. And it's like, oh no, oh, I've I actually see. lived that now. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of breaks my heart a bit more, and I think anyone who has <laughs> had that kind of, you know, um, just waking up in the middle of the day feeling like crap, not slept, shift work is just. It captures that feeling, I think, beautifully. Um, it really again, does. Just, yeah. Yeah. And I think. Yeah, I know. I was just going to. Sorry, you go on. You go on. Sorry, sorry, Joe. Yeah, I was just. Gonna, I was just going to echo what you said. Really, it does. It does kind of capture that well. Um, I think maybe. I, I'm. I'm quite. I think because I, my life's kind of gone through kind of peaks and troughs, if something is really connecting with me at the time, I resonate with my experience. Like at that moment, like you say, like yeah. certainly about the point you made about bonds forming. Um, when I worked in the pub, I had so much of that where like some wild character would, you know, come out of the dark and you just like yeah. start up a conversation with them. And and the film has so many sections like that, doesn't it? Where, you know, it nothing's very... No, no one's really caricatured or overstated, and nothing's really played for comic effect either. And it's not arch; it's not pretentious. It just, it does feel quite, quite realistic in its in its depiction. And they, so it creates that effect of creating quite a fleeting impression of the person in the way that it probably would in real life. And I think the film mm. does capture that really well. Um, and yeah, I had that experience in parts. But I think, I think maybe because that's so far removed from where I've been, the last five six years of working like I've maybe mm. lost it and it's only having this conversation now that I'm kind of reconnecting with that a little bit like talking about working in a pub and in the cinema mm. and stuff and and I think already now I'm starting to see the film um in a in a more positive light because I, I came away from it thinking yeah you know this is really well realized great for what it is beautiful Sean uh, Price Williams photography which you know I, I always love to see um, mm. But, you know, probably not one I'll revisit again, even though it does seem to succeed in all its aims, like, you know, capturing that kind of very hyper-specific feeling of seasonal depression and the, the milieu mm. of, of living in the city during that time as well, which I think it's really good at. Um, but, mm. yeah, just reminiscing, you know, around personal experiences with you now, um, it's, it's growing on me a little bit. And I think probably will echo a similar experience to yourself, whereby... I'll watch it in five years' time and be like, "Yeah, that was that used to be me," and it'll probably have even, yeah. even more resonance. And I think that that you know, if it's maybe a great film, uh, even within its kind of mumblecorey kind of twenty um, tens mm. kind of uh, context that it was made in, uh, it's mm. it, I, I, it's probably not it's probably not one of the great films from that period overall. Although you know, it's debatable how many great Ooh. films actually you know did come out of that period that was that um, was the question i was going to ask is what is the great mumblecore film that you're about <laughs> to reference because i'm struggling yeah. right now to, to think yeah it's i think i think my favorite one although i haven't seen it in years is another one shot by uh, price williams was um the color wheel um uh, that, I, I, I don't consider that I don't, that's not a mumblecore movie in my mind because that was heavily scripted. no yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, when I think of Mumblecore, I think of like the early uh, Bornback stuff. And um, oh god, I can't see. This is a whole milieu that I haven't even thought about for years. So I can't. Joe, Joe Swanberg, Swanberg, maybe a couple yeah. of Swanberg movies and stuff like that. But like, like you said, like as I was making that point, and you picked up on it well. 
that era has just what and this is what I'll say I think why Christmas again was really good is that I thought I'd be watching it and going back into that time period and being like god this kind of proto A24 you know even more independent <laughs> shoestring budget stuff is it had its moment in time and that time has been and gone but I, I do think Christmas again is doing something a little bit more sophisticated possibly that's egged on by the mystique of the fact he's never made another film um, mm. so this was like his one beautiful opportunity to put his personal experiences into a very hyper-specific story that he really wanted to tell. But I do I do mm. think it does have some, you know, thematic and emotional weight to it that maybe a lot of those films that you and I now can't remember <laughs> didn't have. <laughs> yeah, probably did. You know, I did was Uncle Kent really yeah. capturing Good. something? Oh, God. Was, was Hannah Take <laughs> yeah. the sa- Stairs? Funny ha-ha. <laughs> Do you remember, I remember renting Funny Ha Ha off the Auteurists website. I think Incredible. it was like £3.20. And I was just like, I've never I've never been able to find this movie. You know, I'll rent it. And then I watched it for 10 minutes and turned it off and never went back. Like, I was just <laughs> like... And I like and I like Andrew Bajowski. I liked some of his recent films. Yeah, I, I like him too. Computer Chess is brilliant, you know. Yeah. Um, but it was just something about that one where, like, there was a scene where she was drunk getting a tattoo. And the tattoo artist was like... Oh, I'm not allowed to do this because you're drunk. I'm just like, I don't know of any tattoo artist really that would <laughs> turn down a commission like that just because a woman is slightly drunk, not even like yeah. falling over. <laughs> like, you know, I, I can smell you've had one can of Fosters, you know, like it's not, <laughs> I don't think that's enough for a lot of them to, to turn that down. The last thing I'll just say about Christmas again is yeah. do you know what the thing that kind of kills me is the title? It's like, it's got a tiredness to it. Like it's just a tired movie, you know, a tired, jaded. Like, okay, I'm having to do this again. Hopefully, this is the last time I have to do this. It's good, isn't it? And correct me if I'm wrong. I think the first line we hear from someone who's not Noel is uh, "Christmas sucks" by that by that guy. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) the the deadpan way he just says "Christmas sucks," you know immediately what kind of film you're in for. And yes, there's subversions and. playing with the conventions of that kind of rom-com that I think we both agree it does really well, but just laying out its mission statement right at the beginning with that guy just deadpanning Christmas sucks, I thought that was a, a nice touch. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So for me, Christmas again, that's, that's a top five Christmas movie. Uh, I couldn't tell you the other wow. four on that list because <laughs> I don't really think about Christmas films that much, but I'm saying it now, that's no. a top five Christmas film. That's yeah. a good. One. I'm going to put it in there as well, um, just because I too don't really think in the the, the sense of Christmas films that often. Um, there are some obviously that are classics. Uh, you know, the Capra one is my favourite. A very cliched answer, but um, I, I don't think I'll ever go a year without watching It's a Wonderful Life. Um, but I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you. I'll put it in top five, just because, especially after we've chatted about it, I think there's so much resonance in the delicate moments that the film kind of portrays um it's it's kind of it's got that nostalgic feeling for me now in a way that Mm. you know i was pretty pretentious even but even during the peak of mumblecore to the point where i was like i know i won't (laughs) like that i know i won't like that and i've really that kind of uh yeah i've kind of brought that over to a lot of the a24 stuff now where i'm like yeah this this independent shit, you know, it's it's not it's not as great as it's cracked up to be. I definitely had you- that that mindset then as well. Whereas this one, I kind of expected to have a little bit of a snark around it being slight, which is probably where my 
my ire normally falls. But uh, no, I was quite moved by it, and I thought it was um, it, it perfectly delivered on it on its you know modest aims. Mm. Tremendous, tremendous. Um, let's make a hard turn here because that's what this podcast is all about. Ten terabyte hard drive. Okay, <laughs> it's all about the hard turns in that folder. For me, how I organise my hard drive is I have a folder that says films and they all go in there. Like there's no there's no rhyme or reason, there's no organization. They're just in there in this big stew. Um let's I, I don't know why I brought this film up. I do you know what actually I do know why. Uh Love Without Pity, um from nineteen eighty nine, directed by Eric Rochant. Uh, I'm gonna yeah, I'll put a bit of stank on that name. Um Yeah. Um Eric Rochant, uh, co-written by Arnaud Desplachin. So I'm like, here we go. I, I'm, I'm liking a bit of, I like a bit of Desplachin. And then, you know, I see the Dave Kerr review, uh, rom-com that leans more on the rom. I'm like, okay, here we go. I don't have to deal with some French whimsical <laughs> comedy. Here we go. And then I Are you sure about that, Joe? Are you sure about yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason why I had this movie was because um, I can't remember what film it was there was a film that I had watched that I was talking to my dad about um, and he I sent it to him he was just like oh okay cool and I sent it on like Google Drive I wasn't going to confuse him with Mega like I wasn't going to do that to, to my poor father that would confuse him <laughs> immensely so I was just like oh okay here you go and he was just like oh can you find this film for me? It, it was this. It was Love Without Pity. I'm like, yeah, sure. And I was just like, what is it? And he says, like, oh, you know, whatever. I sent it to him. He watched it. He said, like, oh, it was great. Really, really enjoyed it. I was just like, okay, cool. Mm. So I just kept it in my hard drive. I'm like, okay, I've got Christmas again. I need a hard left turn here to then. Yeah. And we got a hard left turn in this movie, which, you know, I didn't hate, but there's no part of me that liked it at all. Like, and I'm them to the question with my dad why he liked it I'm sure what happened was he saw it in 1990 at some London <laughs> art house cinema and was just like yes this is very good and then just forgot about it like you would yeah. in this film uh, and now I'm forced to talk about it for some reason <laughs> it's, uh, I didn't like this I found it juvenile that's that's the word that I had with it it was very juvenile I, d- I don't know what your feelings mm. are of this movie no it's an interesting one um setting the scene for our listeners uh it did come out of the blue um off the back of a <laughs> off the back of the first time we met and i don't know what i expected really i, I kind of thought you know a bit of like 80s kind of channeling the nouvelle vague vibe it could be quite it could be quite an under underrated gem an overlooked gem yeah because you know that sorry go on that, that's what we did all you look think for, that too is that, yeah we look for like <laughs> What's this? Oh, Desplechin. He wrote it. Okay, here we go. I've never heard yeah. of Rochant. Oh, you know. Yeah. Oh, here we go. You know, Roma in the eighties. This was his, some of his best work. You know, uh, Rivet. You know, Rene. They were still. Exactly. They were still. Ba- they were still putting bangers out there. You know, they were still doing interesting work. Maybe this guy was. Maybe he's this unheralded dude. And then. Yeah. No, it's not at all. Like this it, is. It's a. It's a cautionary tale, isn't it? On a certain type of cinephilia, which you know, you and I are. <laughs> like partial to or certainly yeah. you know guilty of um whereby you yeah you always want to discover those 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 overlooked gems and mm. 
Uh, yeah, I, I put a lot of faith in that, especially when you said that your old man had recommended it, because weirdly, my old man's been on a bit of a run uh, that I've been talking about with some some Twitter mutuals recently, um, calling License to Kill the best Bond film, which he was somehow right about, uh, calling A Matter of Life and Death his favourite film, which is which is great, and the film that I was grew up absolutely hating on the back that my dad would quote it all the time off the mm. back of that rather zulu which ended up being fucking sick as well so i was like it's it's time for i think we've reached that age you and i haven't we joe where like we can say now maybe our dads have a good appreciation of uh, of kino cinema and maybe. this one has just completely thrown <laughs> us off because i wasn't even aware that you didn't like it until we started this recording but i i yeah i didn't find i didn't find much to love it's not it's not a complete disaster no, I, fa- I found the, the script. The, the script, the, the the script was quite, you know, it it was zippy. It 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 kind of, you know, it went along quite well. There was some witty lines. It was yeah. it was quite charming in places. It was quite funny. But I think what really killed it for me was just how how stylistically conventional and bland it is. Like I don't think there's there was a single moment where, you know, I was like, oh, he's doing something interesting on a formal level. And look, I know not every film needs to be, you know, experimental or texturally interesting, as we talked about last time when we discussed Dracula, to be effective. But it was just, it was just how devoid of anything, you know, colour palettes, uh, Mm. shots, montage, and I, I couldn't really cling to anything. Um, that kind of elevated it beyond, you know, something that would be a direct-to-DVD thing you'd find in a Parisian, or whatever the Parisian equivalent of Blockbuster would be, that you'd mm. watch with a girlfriend maybe on a first date and then forget about instantly after that. I mean, that was yeah, <laughs> that was my only impression. I, 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 I Just before I pass it back over to you, I took... Oh, that was it. I took a couple of notes. I just want to remember if there was anything substantial I'd say. Two, one thing really was that the music I found absolutely like atrocious, like the <laughs> score that was kind of like weird, like um, upbeat, but also kind of trying to be a bit melancholy, like you know, city jazz Jaunty. or whatever. Like, it was awful it really pissed yeah. me off i like i i i felt so discordant with with the images and what was actually happening on screen and i was just like this is actually you know this could have been a, a two and a half or three star on letterbox you know because it's it's fairly competent it's breezy it's charming enough um but that mm. score maybe pulled it down beyond that for me because every time it kicked in i was like very annoyed i don't know if you if you had yeah. this or a reaction to it yourself no i did I did. As soon as that score kicked in the first time, I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble here. This is this is bad. I, by the way, I did rate it two and a half on Letterbox, and my whole thing oh, did you? Letterbox. When, yeah. Whenever I rate something on Letterbox, like a two days later, I'm like, I need to knock, I need to knock that down. So I'm gonna have to knock that down. When, after knock the, knock this one down. Here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, this is a just, two. I'll give, the, <laughs> I'll give the listeners an exclusive preview into my late this afternoon log. I think. Uh, no, two and a half. I'll give it two and a half. I'll stick with your original ah. one. I think I think okay. that's a fair assessment. There was enough in it that was, you know, I mean, the girl's cute, so she was quite fun to watch. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, I did. I did think it was trying to like if, invoke, obviously, the kind of the French New Wave stuff, 
and it had that kind of disaffected, alienated youth milieu that obviously uh, early Godard and early Truffaut uses quite quite mm. often. Um, but it just didn't really do anything interesting formally with that. And then you think, well, no. okay, clearly those early Goddard films and early Truffaut films and and, and people from, from the French New Wave, like they, they got away with those paper-thin plots, you know, having characters just, you know, read out some philosophy and then there's a cute love story behind it because there was so much <laughs> formal daring and it was so radical. And this one was just the antithesis of that. So I couldn't yeah. really forgive how paper-thin it was in terms of the themes of like alienated French youth at a different time period because there really wasn't any substance behind that <laughs> yeah i mean that's that was the thing that kind of drew me in was like okay it's actually quite a good set when you say like the youth movie and like you've actually got a guy who's like in his late 20s living with his teenage brother in a flat and he's acting like a child you're like okay nice setup here we go um he makes money by playing poker Okay, so he's a decent liar. Okay, cool, we've got something going here. And then that's it until the end of the movie. And then the yes. cute girl comes back after she goes off on her excursion to Boston as a translator for some Russian guy. This sounds ridiculous now, now that I'm talking about it. Um, and then when he comes back, he's still exactly the same. You're like, okay, there's there was a good beginning point and a decent end point. So you had these good, like, beginning and then end points, and then it's like, okay, this guy doesn't change. But it's just there was nothing in the middle that would sort of, like, that created any tension for me, where I'm like, oh, is this guy actually going to... I knew at the end of the movie he was going to be the same. I knew he was going to be like that. And it's like, you know, it was just that level of frustration I had watching it. Um, There was one nice moment... I thought though was there was the other woman who he invited round to like oh let's go on a date you know thinking that that other woman had gone off and then he had to hide on the windowsill outside and then she's oh, just yeah. like I'm gonna wait and then he's just stood there and he's looking down from the windowsill down at the pavement and I think there's a moment where he's just like could I jump and it's like no nah, I can't I can't jump <laughs> You know, and I thought that was quite good. And there was some shots where he's in the yeah. kitchen. You see, you see some of his teenage brother's friends like climbing out onto the roof, smoking. And you, there's some nice layering there. But overall, yeah, like, just, there just just wasn't a huge amount there for me. Um, and I think yeah. again, that thinking I, again. I don't know if you've seen many Desplashan films, but I think you'd like them quite a lot more than this because they do have a sort of vibrant energy to them. And he just throws a lot at the screen. Like he'll just mm. throw irises, he'll throw street. zooms, and yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a big fan of Desplechan, so I'd recommend yeah, I uh, think, I diving th- into his work. I think Desplechan, if the if that was more coming from the script for um, Love Without Pity, because it, it feels like it does fairly un- well understand its its milieu of that kind of like that, like I said, the disaffected, yeah, uh, it's disaffected Parisian youth. Um, you know, replacing there's no meaning left in the world you know, not getting it from a job, not getting it from politics, it has to come from love, so that core idea is quite good, I just think this mm. is a bit of a frivolous, you know, unsubstantial film to explore that idea um, so if that's coming from Desplashan more than from Roshan then yeah, I would I would absolutely love to check out some of, some of his films, because yeah I do confess, I haven't seen any um so yeah, if, if I mean that if that core idea is done by a filmmaker with a bit more, you know, uh, of a sense of style, then yeah, it, it could be good. But that just yeah. wasn't the case here. Absolutely, absolutely. I tell you what, I'm going to do. I'm spending Christmas with my dad this year. I'm going to ask him 
why he liked that movie so much. And I'm <laughs> yes. just going to say, it was charming. And then I'm going to be like, oh, cheers, yeah. you've mugged me off here. So episode two, you will hear from my father on why he likes Love Without Pity so much. Um, let's, it's a good hook. Uh, yeah, two, two and a half out of five, whatever. Let's move yeah. on. Let's move on to the year 2023. Um, and oh, wow. what I think is two of the best films of the year, uh, which we will save our lists for our review of 2023 episode. That will probably be episode mm. two or three. We'll see what happens, listeners. We're going big early. You know, Christmas again, love without pity, and then the year in review. That's what we're all about here. Um <laughs> Let's talk about this. These two films. How do you do? You want to combine them? You know, we got the new Connor O'Malley film, The Mask, and we've got the mm. Damon Packard short film, uh, The Man Who Couldn't Miss Screenings, which was all That's made it, oh. with AI. On I think Runway is the 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 program he was using uh, ah, to make this. Cool. Um, two short films, both on YouTube. Um, I would say two of the funniest things I've ever seen that I've seen this year. Yes, and two of the most up, two of the most upsetting as well. I was very deeply yes, upset yeah. by both of them. Um, should we go with? Let's go with the Packard first, the Damon Packard film. Yeah, the man who couldn't miss screenings. Um, it's basically just a montage of a bunch of overweight men behind computers complaining to their wives. They're Chinese wives, as it says in the bio, <laughs> that they can't miss this screening of, you know, Edward Yang's A Brighter Summer Day <laughs> because it's a 35mm print, you know, and then them yelling at them as a... Oh, I don't even know what this cover of Comfortably Numb is. I don't know where that's come from. No, that um, was the original, wasn't it? Was that the original? Oh, okay. I, th- I think I'm pretty sure that's the original. Yeah, it's interesting because I-, I know that song mostly through the Departed soundtrack, the, the-, the live version. Yes, um, with Van Morrison. Where Van Morrison sings the chorus, but then, <laughs> and then I, which is brilliant. Um, yeah. And the, I've always found the studio version a little bit lacking, but as far as I know, just in case, you know, we get any angry listeners saying, how dare you, you know, claim that Damon Packard would not have, you know, used the original Pink Floyd track. I'm ninety five percent sure it was. <laughs> See now I'm not a Floyd I'm not a I'm not a I almost say Keith Floyd. I am a Keith Floyd man, but I'm not a Pink Floyd yeah. man. So I can't comment on comfortably I'm close. On the Every me. year I find myself, yeah, getting a bit more Floyd pilled. <laughs> oh, don't do it. Um, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> no, Sorry, listeners. I am now thirty. This is this is just the trajectory <laughs> of, of every person. I think every every there's male a, of a certain time. There's a there's a friend of my my dad and stepmoms who's uh, owns a he owns a record shop on the uh, in the south of England. I'm not going to say where. Well, I'll, I'll plug it on, on a later episode. Um, and he says there's a guy that comes into the record shop maybe two three times a week, and. <laughs> He basically all he ever wants to talk about is Pink Floyd's, and he his regular <laughs> opening line is "Dark Side of the Moon, greatest album of all time," and his response is always "No," and then just like moves on with his day. <laughs> like he's just like, "I'm not going to <laughs> with you." Is "Dark Side of the Moon" the greatest album of all time? Um, I don't fantastic. know. It, it, it's just one of those. We're things reliving the seventies still. <laughs> like the can the canon <laughs> arguments around. <laughs> It's still rife in a certain part of South England. I, I, that, that makes me feel happy in a way. 
Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, what I want to say is that basically I think AI in terms of creative endeavours are used mostly for evil and are anti-art, except in the hands yes. of Damon Packard, who has used AI for a few different things. Now, he's got another thing, up, like this sort of like Jalo trailer thing that he's put up that he's used mm. AI to create. That um, I think this is a, a, a. I think AI should really only be used by outsider artists because they don't really have much inclination to make something mainstream anyway. So I think that they're the people to find the limits of AI as a production tool. And I think that this, in this short film of the man who could not miss screenings, <laughs> and that perspective of a man who. For me as well, I've there have been times where I'm like, no, I have to go to this screening because otherwise I'm going to miss out on something here. Um, so again, it did kind of cut me quite badly watching this. Yeah, that was going to um, be my question to you: was were, did you feel seen by this monstrosity? <laughs> I think everyone of a certain type <laughs> definitely would a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I at points, yeah, yeah, there were were times in the past where. It's like, yeah, I've got to go. Like, for for example, I would... I mean, you'd, you'd, you'd have to wade through the cosmic horror of it first, wouldn't you, to actually get to the fact that that is the archetype that he's parodying. Um, yes. But there are certain fleeting moments, are there, where you're like, yeah, I've certainly been that guy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I will say that some of the image making in this was incredible like the fact that he's got a fixation on albert pyun as well like w one of the main characters like the films of albert pyun yeah and then you see a guy filming something and then smoke is coming out of the camera over the guy's head and face yeah i saw you use that shot for the twitter um uh, when you posted on twitter cl claiming rightly that it was one of the year's best works which i would absolutely um echo because I, I was blown away by it but yeah that that shot in particular was 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 brilliant and it, it has that kind of cumulative effect which i think the song the comfortably numb song the way that song builds up really really was a perfect choice for it because it's so funny i mean that's the main thing it's just yeah. every image is progressively more hilarious and warped and twisted than the last and yeah. And you're trying, and I think it, it, like you say, it utilizes uh, AI in the outsider art way, in that you're following the logic that you know AI platforms follow, which is that kind of like weird, um, distorted version of reality, that uncanny mm. valley effect, where yeah. it's like half the half the image is is recognizable, but the way it's being interpreted by the the machine learning platform is so alien. So you're kind of getting that du that dual effect, dueling effect of it. Um, mm. and then I, I feel like the film is so well put together and edited because it's utilizing that it's very aware that that's the effect and it and it has this really like intuitive sense of okay that image was buck wild how can we make the next image even crazier and that just yeah. progresses throughout the whole thing and the cumulative effect of that by the end of it is just like horror amusement and mm. um yeah, just the audacity of it, of of utilizing yeah. that technology in that way. Because I'm going to have to let you speak on this, but I found I found the combination of like a very specific, almost like come town style joke, which is <laughs> you're a yes. loser cinephile, and here's your China, uh, Chinese wife shouting at you. 
yeah. with this kind of like bombastic, overblown, like montage heavy short film um, mm. where the images get increasingly ridiculous and funny. Um, yeah, I just, I found that combination quite potent for me. I mean, by the end of it, I was like, I need to see more by this guy. I think that was a good sign. But if you've unpacked it a little bit more deeply, it'd be good to good to hear, you know, any any further thoughts you've had on. I mean, from my viewings of Damon Packer's films, you know, I've I've seen uh maybe three or four of his films. I, I you know, the one I always recommend is the um if it was like a go to is the uh, untitled Star Wars making of documentary where he took the Phantom Men the Phantom Menace making of and then he filmed his own scenes into it. And it's just like there's like George Lucas talking about the script, and then it's just him with someone going like, "What? What's this guy on about?" And then them doing special effects with some like him doing special effects with like you know scale electrics, and then like some firecrackers, and then George just nodding sagely, going like, "Yes, this is good. Thank you guys." And they're like, "Okay, cheers, George." There's a joke at the end of that Amazing. movie that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil. Please that don't. I is one of the top five jokes in all of cinema in my mind it's <laughs> it's up there it's up there with um i watched the naked gun for the first time recently i don't know if you've ever seen the naked oh, gun i have yeah I have. the bit where he goes snooping in the office and he, he's just like <laughs> and he's just like bingo bingo and he pulls up a bingo card and i'm like oh my god it's so and then the, the vase is falling down and the, Anyway, hilarious. I don't need to go through the jokes of the naked gun on this. Um, (laughs) But do you know what there is with his films? Is that I think the fact that in his life he tried to be a filmmaker, failed, and had to become an outsider one. He's got like an Mm. angry edge to his films, which I think. Yes, there's a bit of appreciation born from that. Yes. Yes, definitely. I think also that bitterness can lead his films to have like quite dodgy representation in some of his movies you know you know how i feel like what i'm going to say is going to put people off from watching his films and it's like again it's fine but like present it i suppose and then we'll see because i think i think there's enough in them there's enough in them i think for people to to check them out and it's similar to that ford conversation we were having last night which is it's there it would be kind of stupid to deny it but it's you know, if it rubs you the wrong way, fair enough. But it's not it's not too problematic from at least from my personal interpretation to say that mm. it supersedes or overrides the the good stuff in the work, you know. And, and yeah. in this case I would say, you know, the, the the technical aspects of it, the it's a very much a unique vision. You know, you it feels very much like a a, a, a particular vision of a particular person with something <laughs> You know, with a, a particular sensibility, with something to say, which I always, which mm. always resonates with me. You know, there's absolutely nothing generic about what he's put together um, for for um, for this particular film. Anyway, obviously, you have to see the rest of them to see if that's consistent across the other works. Um, mm. So yeah, I mean, I'll let I'll let you unpack it if you want, but I think yeah, we can present it to the listener, and if it rubs them the wrong way, I think you know, fair enough, because. Because you know you could you could term it problematic, and we've seen a few, haven't we? You and I've shared a few of the the letterbox reviews that that do find it a little bit too uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think I think that's fair game. Yeah. Um, no, I I, but I I think it is fair. Go on. I think I think how he like how black people for the most part are represented in his movies, you know, again 
if it rubs you the wrong way, and to be honest, it's it rubs great. me the wrong way. Yeah. It rubs me the wrong way because yeah. I'm a bit like, oh, oh, I don't. Mm, that bit I'm not cool with, and it's they're always. It's either like they're homeless or they're like, um, mm. like crazy or whatever else. Like I think there's definitely something going on there, and I I wonder. I think that's always been there in his work, and I wonder if it was exacerbated by the fact of like failing maybe a little bit like maybe there's like an anger and a bitterness that comes out because of that but you know i could be projecting quite a lot onto it i i do think his films are psychedelically overwhelming yeah and i really do recommend them quite a bit um with also admitting that yeah i would say that some of the representation representation stuff in there is pretty shitty at times um yeah it could be yeah, it could be interpreted as a bit dicey like like i say you you've seen you've seen the one you've seen other ones so if that's a recurrent trope across the work you know it's not my place yeah. to say that you know it because well what i'm trying to say is i think in this film the diciness that has been referenced by people that have watched it has obviously been around that kind of stereotypical um asian nagging wife and how that is a problematic um, repeating of that trope. Um, where so if you if I'm just looking at it based on the one film that I've seen, the man uh, who couldn't miss screenings, I think it's it's kind of deliberately playing into the idea of what a, a kind of incelly, very nerdish kind of uh, gamer streamer slash cinephile person if they were in a relationship. Uh, a marital relationship with an Asian, you know, wife who wasn't happy with their lifestyle being, you know, yeah. more focused around gaming than it was, or, yeah. or screenings than it was around their actual relationship and their family dynamics, then naturally they would be quite angry. So I don't find that yeah. aspect of it problematic. I think it's a parody. It's an obvious kind of send up. But like you said, I'm looking forward to watching the other ones and hopefully the uh, the dicey racial politics of the other ones don't supersede what is clearly quite a talented quite unique guy who's got a, a very singular vision uh, mm. a very unique background as we've said with the with having worked at lucasfilm um and no no he, yeah, no, he didn't, AI he didn't in, a, in a unique he didn't way. work at lucasfilm he didn't work at lucasfilm oh was that just, a joke <laughs> he edited himself into working at lucasfilm that was the thing <laughs> So that's no, part, no. yeah, because we said we said. I remember when you introduced him to me, and I looked, and he's got like former employee of Lucasfilm or LucasArts on his right. thing. So my my kind of headcanon after you sent me this film was like, here's a disgruntled ex-employee who's got quite a <laughs> sense of kind of innovative technology, working right. it from the outsider artist perspective. But if that's part of the bit that comes clear when you see the Phantom Menace kind of stand up, then yeah, yeah, he's 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 had me there. <laughs> All right. Um, let's uh, also something I wanted to say about this whilst tying it into the final film we're just going to talk about quickly is I think that when you have like new technologies I think you should give it to people so that they can break it and like send it to like a complete end points you know like if you yes. had with dig- digital cameras when you gave it to Michael Mann and he made Collateral great you know great I think yeah. obviously I don't think this is on the level of something like Collateral but I do think that he is trying to push it um, to that yeah. degree, and I also think stretching the, the boundaries of, of the form, isn't it? Taking it to its kind of most extreme point. Um, mm. Even as you say, if it's not as artistically uh, substantial as maybe some of the innovations by great master filmmakers in other digital formats, 
it's certainly a guy who wants to really expand and push the boundaries of that form and that mm. is probably what I think you and I respond to best about that this film absolutely and also added to that I would say the how Connor O'Malley uses the selfie stick in his new film <laughs> The Mask and how he uses great segue. online platform how he uses online <laughs> thank you how he uses online platforms <laughs> to really get at the feeling of being online on the internet too much like being so permanently online that it creates a sense of mania um mm. i i think i watched this yesterday and it would like it really quite upset me a lot <laughs> like, i was really <laughs> upset by this movie um i think it's one of the best of the year um and it really oh, kind of yeah it cuts something i don't know how he does it it's something in his performance because you could take all those textures take all that same framework everything and you put another performance in there and it's just something off he has struck a balance with his performance that allows you to be in this world with these characters who are manic do you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's, he, he oh, yeah. I don't know how he does it. He's, he's got like a special thing going on where, you know, we, we're all, he's, there is a self awareness there. It's revealed also in the credits, the self awareness as well, you know, when it says, you know, with special thanks to, you know, Josh and Benny Safdie and all the people that worked on it and blah, blah, blah. And it's written and directed by him. Like, they make it clear that this is a film. Like, they could upload that and not have the credits on there. And you would mm. be someone. Someone could watch that and go like, "What the fuck was that?" Like they could be, you know, taken to that level. But I don't know. It, it, I think it's a great representation of just online spiraling. You know that rabbit hole spiraling that you go through when you're online too much. So, so and so I, I have an awkward confession to make, which mm. is that because you sent this to me during, you know, just for the listener's sake, a quite busy period for me, I'd, I'd come off the back of you sending me the, the man who couldn't miss screenings. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I kind of expected something uh, similar in the sense that, you know, underground uh, YouTube, primarily YouTube-based filmmaker, um, doing something quite contemporary and quite, you know, uh, quite subversive and quite funny. And... So for for probably sixty five percent of the film, I was like, I thought it was I was seeing a, a real documentary. In the same way that you sent me the boogie one, I thought I was watching the boogie one about the guy that Conor O'Malley plays. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. I, I which mean... which was incredible, by the way, because I do think, and this goes back to the point I think you were just making, someone could watch that in the way that I did. Um, you know, come across that on YouTube through the algorithm or, or through whatever means and think, you know, God, this is a real guy. Mm. And then it was only afterwards, I was like, oh my God, not only is, I mean, it, there were there were times where I was like, okay, it's it's clearly a, a work. Um, and that and that got to, to kind of a, it, that reached a crescendo at certain points. So I was like, yeah, okay, that's that, I, I've, I've been misled here. That this is a work mm. uh, and we can dig into that a little bit. Um because yeah, there are some some unbelievable high points in his depiction of a of a spiraling, terminally online, um, obsessed with the the Hollywood dream guy. Mm. Um, but yeah, I was 
I was definitely one of the people which I think w- this film would function best for, 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 for a lot of its runtime, which is you just come across this film and you think this is a real guy. And I guess it is testament to, you know, what he's, what, um, what O'Malley's put together here in that it feels that convincing because I'm sure you who knew obviously from the beginning about Conor O'Malley about his kind of SNL background or his comedy background and that this yeah. was clearly a bit like you were probably like god this this could be real you know and that's probably yeah. the full strength of the film isn't it well the thing that I, I it's was the, it's, it's the t- it's the TikTok king of comedy isn't it <laughs> yeah <laughs> it is actually in a way yeah god I didn't even think of that Oh, and the the roommate Sandra Bernhard. Oh my God! Yeah, that's a great great shout. That's a great yes, shout. Good. No, great the, shout from yourself as well. Yeah, and thought about the what, roommate thing. Yeah, do you know what got me was that like I thought like there's no way he's been making this for four years, has he? Like when he was like 2019, 20, I was like, God, has he really been working on this as much? Is, it, like, is that the case? Sorry to cut you off, Joe. Is that? Had I don't been, know. Had he been trying to make? Oh, so know. that's unknown. I would be surprised though, because it reminds me a little bit about like, you know, when Sasha Baron Cohen got really well known. So films mm. like Bruno, even though they're only like 70 minutes long, took like seven years to make because, <laughs> you know, there's so many like real life celebrity interactions that you had to manufacture for, for the piece. Mm. And you've got many of these in this one, like the John Mayer one, the guy from Whose Line Is It Anyway? And you think, yeah, this it's quite hard to manufacture things that have a reflection of reality or require some actual real-life events, you know, media, uh, social media um, known events to take place for the film to work. Yeah, I wouldn't mm. be surprised if this was like a labour of love over, over many years to give it that authentic feeling, you know? Yeah, I mean, the specificity of... The I need to, by the way, work on my pronunciation for the next episode because I've said it like four times and I've st- <laughs> stumbled my way through it every time. Um, of like when he went to the prank audition, um, I was just like, Oh, that was did, brutal. He, did, he, did he actually go? And then afterwards, I went back, found it, found the channel, and like tried to find the, the thing. I'm like, No, he's like created this from there. I'm like, He's created that. Oh yeah. my god, like just. This is obviously someone who's watched a lot of them, like watched a lot of these mm. things, so that he could get this down. You know, actually going to like the Eternals premiere. You know, I, I think there's a, yeah. a, an, there's yeah. an amazing cut where he's at that premiere and he's over the hedge and he's got his little camcorder filming it, and then he goes to the selfie stick where he's oh, filming himself God. filming. So, so going back just briefly before you talk about that shot, that was when I knew. I mean, so so I, f- I just give the listeners some context. When I first got an inkling, there's a lot of really, really brutal scenes at the beginning. And bearing in mind, this is in the context of me thinking this was an actual a, a, a documentary filmmaker working through YouTube who's found a guy online that he's wanted to make a film about in the same way that the boogie film operates as. Um, mm. But there was too many scenes of the abuse of him at the hands of his family for it to be real. Do you know what I mean? That was when I, yeah. I started to twig. I was like, no way would he have captured, you know, the bit where his brothers yes. are like, you know, beating on him and stuff. But still, you know, I was still 50-50 at that point. But the moment that really got me, I was like, the keynote, the absolute aesthetic beauty of that 360 selfie shot yeah. uh, was the moment. I was like, this cannot be real because that is like one of the best shots I've seen in years. That's unbelievable. The shot, um, uh, yeah, that, that cut is amazing that switch of angle and it is up. It, you know it's like um you know it did remind me of like 
I don't know if you've ever seen Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, that movie. Have you ever seen that no. film? Oh, it's no, an amazing no, film. It's about... A f- okay, it's a film set in a park, and you see, like, the interactions happening between people, and then there's another layer to the film where you see the making of that film, and then there's, another, there's a third layer to the film showing the making of that and then the surrounding area as well like it goes it takes an even more panoramic view so you go from like film making of panoramic of the thing and it reminded me of that of just how jarring that feeling was and you know the um that the swirling effect was really like because it's kind of at the point in the film and i think this is why the film is so well put together and edited um it's obviously a spiraling descent into you know chaos Mm. madness in terms of the way he's conspiracy theory yeah exactly he's seeking fame initially in quite a harmless way it seems although it's having quite a profound effect on his family dynamics um Mm. but when when everything comes apart the the dream of him becoming an actor his grandma passing away his his family basically saying you're pissing away your inheritance and and obviously his humiliation at the hands of uh, the fake um uh, at the hands of the fake uh, interview guy, um, fake audition guys. It, that's when that shot comes into play, and it's just like all the mania of it, all the like sensory overload of all the different social media platforms that are pulling him into that world and sucking him, you know, deeper into the depths of that. Um, that shot just hits at that perfect time for it, and it's mm. such a powerful visual illustration of you know because it's it's quite a realistic. Um, you know, yeah. tale, isn't it? You know, tale as old as time. The people who've gone to Hollywood and you know basically ended up killing themselves because they can't reach their dreams. Then that hyper accelerated through the modern um, methods of things like social media and stuff. And it's mm. just this horrible recipe, like this toxic recipe for just like self destruction and self delusion. And the film mm. is so you know quick on its feet and it captures all of that. You know, in all its kind of lunacy and madness. Um, let me just give you one quick quote from the top-rated letterbox review of this film because it pertains to the shot that you and I are both quite enamoured with. <laughs> it says, Uzo had the low-angle effect, Hitchcock had the POV shot, Goddard had the jump cut, and O'Malley has the masterful selfie stick floating camera. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. The, the well, attack... Yeah, I'm, I'm all on board with that. <laughs> the attack on Colin Mockery... When he goes to the hair and that swirl oh of like God. violence that happens, it was just incredible. That was absolutely the, the way incredible. that's foreshadowed with his his that kind of understated moment where you first get a glimpse of how insane he is as well. Where he's yeah. gone to that improv class and cut that guy's ponytail, and you again, it's lent realism by the fact that you're seeing the real time Facebook comment response to what he's supposedly done. Yeah, um, and all of it's just kind of that cumulative effect of kind of whipping you into this like, idea that yeah, this this is all very plausible, like terrifyingly yeah. plausible, and I think that's probably yeah. why it upset you so much. Yeah, it reminds me of the you know I think it would be make for a great double bill with the film Spree. I don't know if you saw that from a few years ago. It was um, really recommend that. What that got down as well was like Twitch stream comments. It got the specific feeling of those comments correct and i believe the director actually wrote every single comment so that it was like you know it, it did feel authentic and i think mm, that this I'm sure captures that's the case that authentic- here as well yeah, yeah like that sort of facebook pile on 
you know, the YouTube reactions, the TikTok reactions as well. Like, it felt real. And that was the product yeah. of the person who works online and is online and feels online, you know. A hundred percent. That that whole style was kind of um, began with something like Catfish, didn't it, in 2010? It was like the yeah. first film that kind of did that whole, like, part of the filmmaking. And then and Fincher did a lot of it in Social Network as well, whereby the filmmaking is actually, you know... Um, what, what's what's in the frame is is comments coming up on a on a on a computer screen, and how yeah. you can kind of use that to kind of uh, present a, a reality, an alternative reality within the context of the of the world that the film is building. Mm. And I think you've got now fast forward thirteen years where you know that lifestyle is ubiquitous for all of us. You know, yeah. we're all terminally online. You've got that filmmaking kind of warped and inverted and 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 turned in on itself to it's kind of to its logical endpoint whereby you know it's just destroying the minds of people but we're seeing it presented as a facebook comment which you know mm. should be harmless but really you know we know how kind of how kind of damaging it, it can be um yeah so yeah i haven't, I haven't really articulated that very well but i i do think that this film <laughs> Um, is very conversant with social media in a way that's really sophisticated and, and mm. really quite true to life. And then, you know, how can we how, how can we get away from the, the, the set piece being um, a conspiracy theory delivered at Waterworld? <laughs> at the Universal <laughs> Studios Waterworld bit. I mean, that, was, that, Brilliant. that, that might be one of the most genius moves like, <laughs> of yeah. the year in yeah. any film. Yeah. I was absolutely Actually. loving that. <laughs> It was incredible. It was incredible. Right, yeah. we'll wrap this up here. Gareth, thank yeah. you so much for joining me. Uh, top Pleasure man. Pleasure as always, Joe. It's been great. Yeah, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to wrap this up afterwards. We're going to have a little sting, and then uh, I'll uh, I'll catch you on the other side. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be back next week. Do you, do you fancy... I mean, I've got an episode two idea. I don't know if you want to hear it now, or do you want to do, like, mm, a 2023... I would like to hear it now. Okay, what I'm going to do is, for each episode, I'm going to put a mega folder and into the episode description, so you can click on that and get the films if you want to watch them. So we've got Love Without Pity and um, Christmas again in there. Episode two is already up there, and that is um, Love and Pop and Showgirls. Have you ever seen Love and Pop? Oh, I have seen Love and Pop. It's a masterpiece, and Showgirls is a masterpiece as well. So yeah. Anno and Verhoeven. I mean, you're you're spoiling me for Christmas, Jeff. Mm, mm. I started watching Love and Pop. I've never seen it before, and I watched like the first five minutes, and it's it's almost too much. It's almost too much. But it's, listen, yeah. so I'm I'm spoiling. I'm spoiling you. Right? It's in there. Watch <laughs> no it before the next you. episode if you want. Enjoy yourselves and uh, have a lovely Christmas, everyone. Right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for joining us. You can contact us at our respective Twitter accounts, which are linked in the bio. Uh, you can also email us. That's right, it's 1997. You can email us at 10 pod at gmail.com. Again, email in the description. Get at me if you want it. Oh, that's right. That's the sound of something downloading. Something good for you all to enjoy at a later date. 
But yes, contact us at 10db hard drive, tb hard drive, pod at gmail.com. Particularly if you want to give us money. See you later.